0: It's been nearly a year of analyzing the crime scene, studying victimology, breaking down autopsies and crime scene photos. We've profiled the scene and listened to oh so many interviews of people who were close to the victims in the days leading up to their murders. To this point, in my opinion, no clear suspects have emerged. I do have a solid list of persons of interest, but no real suspects and no real motive. So we've reached the point in the process that so many of you have been anxiously waiting for, a deep dive into the case that was built against and ultimately ended with the convictions of Robert Pape and Christian Smith. All we've covered to this point are their initial police interviews, and Javi's report to the police that Robert and Christian had made plans to go hiking with Becky on the night of the murders, but they both say that they never followed through with those plans. Aside from that, we have some cell phone evidence. The state alleges that the call logs show that after 7 p.m., the two teenagers were moving in the direction of Pinion Pines. At least they say Robert was. It's a much tougher case to make that Christian was moving in that direction since the outgoing calls from his cell phone show him moving in the exact opposite direction. Now clearly, there's some murkiness there. But at least the state is able to say that during the time of the murders, Pape and Smith's phones were not connected to a cell tower which gives one point to the state, since there's no cell service at the crime scene, but still stands as pretty weak circumstantial evidence, considering that the records show blocks of time like this with no service for the two isn't out of the ordinary at all. In fact, it's almost a daily occurrence, but you can see how the state's building its case. Then we heard about the drive test that proved that it's possible, albeit unlikely considering the circumstances, that Robert could have been at the Friedley house when Becky's body was lit on fire and made it back into the reach of cell tower 88 to check his voicemail at 10 23 p.m. It's a struggle, but if you squint real hard, you can see how the state was able to show that it is possible for Robert and Christian to have been at the crime scene at the time of the murders. But in order to convict, they needed to prove that it wasn't just possible. They had to prove to the jury that Robert and Christian were in fact present during the murders and they did that with one piece of physical evidence this is season 12 episode 37 the business card
1: Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi, so you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Require Skystream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus. Terms apply.
0: I want to give a little disclaimer before I get into this. This is probably not an episode where you want to have your kids around while you're listening. I don't know exactly where all of this is going to go. I have my outline in front of me, but I know how I feel about all this information and pretty sure I'm not going to get through it without using some colorful language. So you may want to put earmuffs on the kids or send them to another room while you're listening to this episode. Except you, Zach. Maddox and Sagan have heard me playing board games in the past, and they've heard way worse than this. Now, we'll start the show. Before I begin, it's important to understand that without this business card, the state has no case against Robert and Christian. The case is circumstantial with the card. It's non-existent without it. Knowing that, I want to break this business card business down into three parts. Who found the card, and where did they find it? Did Christian touch the card, and how sure are we of that? And lastly, does the card actually have any connection to the crime, regardless of who touched it? So let's get started with who found the card and where. The first round of evidence collection was completed by Officer Ramirez. He notes in his report that firefighters had followed the wheelbarrow tracks from the wheelbarrow back to around 200 yards into the desert, They were looking for any more victims, that's why they followed the tracks. Once they came to the end of the tracks and saw no more bodies, they returned back to the scene. Now, if you've watched the video of the crime scene walk on our YouTube channel, you can see all of the firefighter footprints in the sand. If you do watch it, take note of how deep and easily distinguishable those tracks are. The tracks that were made two days before the video was recorded by the investigators and the firefighters. Then, look through the crime scene photos of the footprints that are supposedly connected to the murders. You would never guess that the tennis shoe prints that were supposedly made during the murders were made there hours before the firefighter boot prints and the investigator boot prints were made. Ramirez collects all the evidence he can find in the early morning hours of September 18th, which amounts to a total of 15 items. A fluid sample from the wheelbarrow, both wheelbarrow handles, which he cut off to collect, which I'm sorry, has to be one of the biggest bonehead moves I've ever seen on a crime scene. He literally left a wheelbarrow full of evidence behind and just took the handles. He also collected a bottle of lighter fluid, a box of matches, a 357 revolver found in the house, a 9mm pistol found in the house, two rifles found in the house, and six gas cans. Now, what you don't see on the list was a business card, which, I guess it's fair because it was dark when he started his investigation and it was nowhere near the actual crime scene. On January 8th, 2007, just shy of four months after the murders, Detective LeClaire wrote a report documenting how he found the business card. LeClaire says that he arrived on the crime scene at 1.47 a.m. on the 18th. He says that he was helping Ramirez investigate the crime scene and he went off to check out the wheelbarrow track. By the time trial rolled around, it was testified to that there were consistently footprints following the track the entire way back to what's called the origination point in this report. At trial, they called it an area of disturbance. I've always thought this was total bullshit, and I still believe that. We never see any pictures showing a steady pattern of prints. The photos show one here, one there, with big spaces in between. In this report, LeClaire says that he started following the tracks back from the wheelbarrow, and 25 feet away from it, he finds the first print. Let me repeat that. His theory is that just hours before he's walking this path, the killers pushed Becky to her final resting place in the wheelbarrow, and yet there isn't a single footprint in the final 25 feet in the sand. Just a broken wheelbarrow track. He says that he followed the track back quote about 180 yards to the north and then he noticed two different shoe patterns along the path quote at various intervals one pattern was present in the first 100 yards then the second for the last 80 yards up to the origination point point. and again that distance is estimated because no one bothered to get a gps waypoint use a measuring wheel or even take a picture with the house or a landmark in the background for orientation purposes I'll also point out that at trial, it was testified that this origination point was between 200 and 800 yards. So who the hell knows? At the end of his narrative, Leclerc changes the distance from about 180 yards to now about 165 yards from the wheelbarrow to the origination point. He goes on to say that once he reached the origination point of the wheelbarrow tracks. They just stop at that point. No more footprints either. He then, quote, searched the area and found a single business card lying in the dirt nearby. He says the card was unsoiled, which he thought was unusual. And to be fair, the card wasn't really dirty. It was, however, crumpled up and unevenly sunstained. I don't think unsoiled is the word that I would have used to describe it. In any case... Here we get a location where Leclerc says in this January 2007 report that he found the card. He says, quote, The business card was located about 20 yards north of the origination point of the wheelbarrow. I retained the card as evidence and submitted it for fingerprints. End quote. Sounds pretty straightforward, right? Oh, let me tell you what. It's pretty fucking far from straightforward. Now, if you're one of those folks that already has your mind made up that these guys are guilty and you don't want to be bothered with facts that could make a reasonable person question themselves, it's probably a good time to plug your ears. First things first, I think that we can all agree from the sound of LeClaire's report that he knew right away that this business card was important. So much so that he didn't bother to have a crime scene tech collect it, which is protocol. Nope, he supposedly collected it himself. If you look at the evidence numbers assigned to each piece of evidence and in for forensic testing, they're all numbered in sequence. 131, 132, so on and so forth. But the business card isn't cataloged in that sequence. It's labeled as evidence item GL1, which of course stands for Gary Leclaire's One Piece of Evidence Collected. Now, according to this report, Ramirez is still on the scene. LeClaire says he's working with Ramirez, the actual crime scene tech whose job it is to collect and preserve evidence, but he doesn't say, Hey Ramirez, I've got something. He doesn't even include it in the sequence of evidence items that are being cataloged. Strange, right? Just in case I'm not being clear, let me put a finer point on it. What LeClaire says happened is that he, a detective, not a crime scene tech, was working with the crime scene tech on the scene when he decided to take a walk by himself to follow the tracks again. He says that while on his walk, he found what he believed to be a crucial piece of evidence. Now, since he's not a crime scene tech, he wouldn't have evidence markers and bags with him, but somehow he takes a couple of pictures of this important piece of evidence with zero perspective, no map, no GPS location, No picture with the house smoldering in the background for perspective, just a picture of the card from about 20 feet away, and then a close-up of the card on the ground. In the picture, there's an evidence flag and an evidence marker scale sitting next to the card. Now, someone out there may correct me on this. Maybe in Riverside County, the detectives walk around on the scene with these items. But for the sake of my argument here, I'm going to say that he wouldn't have had those items on him. That's not something detectives do, that's something crime scene techs do. Which would mean that he would have had to go back to the house and get those items, where Ramirez, the actual evidence tech, was supposedly still working. But instead of notifying Ramirez, he goes back out to the card, or for the sake of the less fun argument, he had the stuff in his pocket, so he didn't have to walk back to the house first. In either case, he doesn't get the evidence tech, He takes a couple of photos, which are of zero use, and he collects the card, which is an important piece of evidence. And he says he sent it off for fingerprint analysis. That's all right in one paragraph in the report. And I'm telling you, this is not normal. If he in fact found that card where he said he found it, when he said he found it, he should have had it collected by the tech and it should have been logged in sequence with the other evidence. Not as GL1. Things are about to get worse. So if you didn't already plug your ears, now's probably the time. So LeClaire claims he found the card in the desert 20 yards north of the area of disturbance on the morning of the 18th. And he recognized it as important evidence and he sent it off for fingerprint testing. Except he didn't. Not right away. When we look at the lab reports, which we're going to get into here shortly, we see that the evidence Ramirez collected was received by the forensic lab on September 27th. That's when the bulk of the evidence was sent off by none other than Gary LeClaire himself. You following me? LeClaire is the one who sent the first batch of evidence off to the lab, and he didn't send the business card with it. The business card wasn't sent to the lab until October 12th, which means that if Leclerc is being honest about when and where he found the card, he didn't send it to the lab for three and a half weeks, 24 days. That seems a little odd, doesn't it? It was so important to collect it that he didn't even bother calling the evidence tech over to do so, and then he sits on it for 24 days. Let me just be crystal clear here. What I'm saying is that I personally don't believe that LeClaire found that card in the desert at all, much less on the morning of the murders. I don't believe that he went wandering off by himself, found the card, collected it himself, and didn't document its exact location. My personal hypothesis is that the reason we don't see the smoldering house in the background of pictures for perspective, which would have been smart, is because the house was already torn down by the time he went out there to take that picture. I do not believe that he would have waited 24 days to send it off to the lab if he had found it on day one. And things get even worse when we look at his interview with Marie Whitman, the woman whose name is actually on the card. Guess when he interviews the woman whose name was on this critical piece of evidence. November 17th. Didn't have a hard time tracking her down. Her fucking phone number was on the card along with her email. But he waits two months to call her. I'm sorry, but there is no freaking way that he had that card from Jump Street and waited two months to call Whitman. No way in hell. So this is what makes sense to me. There is a scenario where it is normal for a detective to collect evidence rather than a crime scene tech, and that is if someone gives it to them rather than it being found on a crime scene. See, the detectives are the ones that are out beating the street after the crime scene investigation. They're the ones that are talking to witnesses, giving people their card. They're the point of contact. So let's think back to all the people we heard LeClaire talk to. Pretty much all the teenagers, right? You guys were all sick of hearing him do all these interviews. He was out talking to all those teenagers in those first couple of weeks. And in those interviews, we heard from several people that folks were going up to the crime scene after the police cleared to pick through the rubble. We heard that from some family members, from some friends, Javier, Bonash, his group. They were all going up there to sift through the rubble. Well, what if one of those witnesses actually found the card laying on the property, or, say, around the dumpster, and turned it over to LeClaire? Let me play for you a quick clip from a KMIR news report from 2014. This is right after Robert and Christian were arrested the first time. Elizabeth Bobain is reporting, and she's talking to someone who's hiding their identity with a hood, and they're having their voice disguised. Although, I'd say that I'm 95% sure that I know who this person is. But in this conversation, this source is telling Elizabeth that he and some friends were up at the crime scene sifting through the rubble, and they found a few things. Right before this clip that you're about to hear, he was saying that Javier was one of the group that was up there, and that he kept a marijuana pipe shaped like an elephant. I want you to listen to what this source had to say. Because evidently they were good friends, and he just disappeared.
1: And that pipe wasn't the only thing the group found. They also discovered a business card, which they eventually turned over to police.
0: Maybe it was on a trail, maybe it was but it was definitely outside of the house it wasn't anywhere inside the house, on the property.
1: Our source for this information can't remember what business the card came from but you may recall this piece of information may be important because investigators say they've linked one of the two suspects arrested for these murders to the crime scene through a partial DNA on a business card. That business card was found near Becky Friedley's burned body on a trail near the house. We have not been able to confirm if the card found by our source is the same one detectives used to link the suspect to the scene.
0: The Sheriff's Department wouldn't confirm or deny if the card that this witness says they found and turned over to police is the same card that LeClaire claims to have found in the desert on the morning of the 18th. But what I can tell you is that there aren't two business cards in the evidence file.
1: terms and conditions 18
0: at this point i think it's fair to say that it's highly questionable whether the business card was even found in the desert at all it could just as easily have been found in the pile of trash by the dumpster days later but with a pin put in that let's move on to the id that was made on the card As most of you know, in the 2018 trial, it was testified that Christian Smith's DNA and fingerprints were found on the business card. It was, in fact, the linchpin of the state's case. Without that ID, the prosecution had absolutely no way to connect Robert and Christian to the crime scene or the crime itself. But at best, they could show that it could be possible for them to have been there, but the business card puts them there. Or at least that's what they say it does. Let's start with the fingerprint ID. This part should be pretty cut and dry, right? Wrong. It's an absolute clusterfuck of a dumpster fire. As I mentioned earlier, the business card was sent over to the Riverside Sheriff's Evidence Lab for fingerprint analysis on October 12th. Then on the 27th, lab technician Marixa Scott sent the results back to LeClaire. This is what those results say regarding the business card. Quote, Item number GL1 was treated with ninhydrin. Two latent fingerprints were developed and labeled prints number one and number two. I took five overall close-up photographs of prints one and two. Neither print is comparable. End quote. So here's our first attempt at identifying the prints on the card. The tech used ninhydrin to develop the prints. It's a chemical that attaches to amino acids and proteins and causes them to turn a dark purple color. And that's what you're looking for when you develop fingerprints. If you were to look at the pads of your fingertips under a microscope, you'd see that the tiny ridges that make up your fingerprint are actually full of teeny tiny little pores. Those pores secrete oil. That oil contains aminos, and that's what leaves the print behind. Valid fingerprint comparison is actually far more complicated than what people think or what you see on TV. It's not just about matching the swirls and patterns you can see with your naked eye. A proper match has to match the ridges and the pores on a microscopic level, and there have to be a certain number of data points to consider it a match. And in this case, there wasn't enough data. They couldn't make a match to anyone. They couldn't compare it to anything, not on either print. The lab tech developed the partial prints with the ninhydrin, took photos of the prints, checked them under a microscope, and determined that there's not enough detail or data points to make a comparison to anything. They're useless fingerprints. And by the way, the process with the ninhydrin can't be redone. You get one crack at developing the prints. What was developed in that lab and those photos are all anyone will ever have to compare any prints in the future. So, in October of 2006, LeClaire had nothing. The prints in the card had been developed, and there was not enough detail or data points to make a comparison with them. So, obviously, a year later, the district attorney's office wanted to try again. By this point, Robert and Christian were their suspects, but as I mentioned, they had no actual case against them. So, on October 22nd of 2007, so now a year later, Assistant District Attorney Bill Mitchell sent the fingerprints that had been developed by technician Scott a year prior along with newly obtained print cards from Robert and Christian, back to the lab for comparison. And he also sent along a print card containing Bo Nash's fingerprints for good measure. We'll get into more about Bo in another episode. This time we have a new examiner, same lab, different examiner, Yolanda Pena Perez. She re-examined the fingerprints from the card and determined that print number two did not have enough detail or data points to make any comparison. So she agreed with the previous technician's conclusion on that one. But she did determine that print number one did have enough data points for a comparison. And so, as requested, she compared it to Robert and Christian's fingerprints as well as Bo's. Quote, I then compared the impression on number 231319, print number one, and determined that the impression does not match Mr. Smith, Mr. Nash, or Mr. Pape. My findings were verified by a second examiner, forensic technician, Jennifer Sniff, who works in this office. End quote. You can't make this shit up, people. I actually wish I was joking, but this gets worse. Just to recap where we're at right now, in 2006, the prints were developed and determined to be not of comparable quality. Then a year later, in 2007, a second and third technician took a closer look and both confirmed that print number two is not of comparable quality. And they concluded that print number one is of comparable quality, and it definitely did not come from Robert or Christian. And this is actually extremely problematic for the state because the DNA testing that I'm going to tell you about here shortly came from those prints. After the prints were developed with the ninhydrin, which identified where the aminos were located, those prints were swabbed and sent for DNA testing. And I've already told you that by trial time, it was determined that the aminos that created those fingerprints were supposedly a match to Christian Smith, which is pretty fucking weird, considering two lab technicians just confirmed that at least one of those prints isn't his. Now, the state knows that they have a big problem here. Once the DNA results were in, they had to somehow figure out how to convince a jury that DNA taken from a fingerprint matches someone who we know didn't make the fucking fingerprint. So how did they handle that? Well, they just sent the prints to another lab in 2018, right before the trial. DA investigator Ryan Bodmer sent the photos that were taken of the fingerprints way back in 2006 to the California DOJ lab, as his boss was preparing to try Robert and Christian, and I'll bet you can guess what happened next. Miraculously, the California DOJ lab examined the photos that had already been examined by three other qualified technicians, and they concluded the following: quote, two latent impressions relative to this case have been identified as being made by Christian Smith. End quote. Yep. Like I said, you can't make this shit up. On the eve of the trial, a fourth technician looked at those 12-year-old photos and determined everyone else got it wrong. Print number two now has plenty of data points, even though three other technicians said that it didn't, and guess what? It matches Christian, and that's bad enough. But print number one, the two techs who reviewed it in 2007 found plenty of data points and ruled Christian out as a contributor. That means that there were specific differences between the print on that card and Christian's prints. That is a huge deal. They're not just saying like they couldn't line them up right. There were specific microscopic data points that proved that Christian didn't make that print in 2007, but somehow abracadabra, now both prints are a perfect match to Christian Smith. That's how Robert and Christian were convicted. Without that match, the state could not make the argument at trial that it was his DNA on the card, which was just as problematic. As far as the DNA is concerned, we'll be getting into that in detail next week. I'm interviewing a DNA expert who's reviewed the file tomorrow, so you'll hear that interview next week. But here's the quick down and dirty with the DNA. The Riverside Sheriff's Lab didn't find any usable DNA on the swab from the fingerprints on the card. I don't think they even tried to test for any, actually. Then, in 2007, the sample was sent to HIT laboratories for examination. They found a mixture containing two partial DNA profiles on the card. Their findings concluded that one of the contributors was male, and they couldn't rule out that there was also a female DNA contributor. The lab concluded that 1 in 320,000 Caucasian males cannot be excluded as the male contributor. And Now, that may sound like a lot, but that's not really considered to be a match. A good match is usually something like 1 in 10 trillion. But in this case, in this examination, in these results, Christian could not be ruled out as a possible contributor. But, as I mentioned earlier, this finding was problematic for the state. They had a weak, non-exclusion on a partial profile that came from a fingerprint that was determined not to be Christians. So, just like with the fingerprint, they tried again. In 2014, when Robert and Christian were arrested the first time, the state knew their case was incredibly weak. So they asked HIT Laboratories to re-examine the swab that was collected from the fingerprint card back in 2006. You'll hear next week why maybe we should be suspicious of these findings, and at the conclusion of this episode, you should be really suspicious of them. But we'll wait for next week to get into those details. I don't pretend to understand the science enough to explain it. And that's why I'm bringing an expert in. In any case, the same swab was examined again. And this time, rather than a profile that includes one out of every 320,000 Caucasian males, it's now a direct hit on Christian. He can't be excluded and now only one in 28 trillion Caucasian males can be included. Which is pretty damn decisive considering there are only 7.8 billion people on the entire planet. They got him. So this is the basic timeline of the forensics on the business card. In 2006, they didn't find any DNA on the card, and there were no usable fingerprints. They had nothing. In 2007, Christian couldn't be excluded via DNA as the contributor of the fingerprints on the card, but based on fingerprint analysis, he could not have made at least one of those prints. The other print wasn't usable for comparison. Then in 2014, Robert and Christian are arrested, and a new DNA examination is done, that gives the state a direct hit on Christian being the contributor on the DNA on the card. But the fingerprint analysis conflicts with that finding. Charges are dropped against the two and they're released. Then in 2016, they're arrested again. And in 2018, just before the trial, the state's problem with the business card all seems to go away. When the California DOJ finds that Christian's fingerprints match both prints on the card. It took 12 years and multiple labs and technicians... But it was ultimately determined that Christian definitely, according to the state, touched that card at some point.
1: With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
1: Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: This is where things stand right now. I have zero confidence that LeClaire found the business card at the crime scene on the 18th. Every single thing about his story is suspect. We have a witness who says that he and his friends found that card on the property well after the police had finished their investigation and turned it over to a detective. I'm fully convinced that's exactly what happened. So that's thing one. In all likelihood, the card wasn't found where LeClaire said it was found, or when he said he found it. But Let's just assume for this final segment that he's telling the truth. Let's assume that on the morning of the 18th, Gary LeClaire found the business cards 20 years north of the origination point of the wheelbarrow out in the desert. Let's just concede that for this discussion. Secondly, Christian's connection to the card. As I just laid out, his identification is problematic at best. But again, for this segment, let's assume that Christian did in fact touch that card. We're just going to go along with the state's narrative here for a minute. If both of those things are true, Christian touched that card and it was found out in the desert 20 yards north of the origination point, what does that have to do with the crime itself? Is it even relevant? Let's break it down and then you tell me what you think. First things first, do I believe Christian could have touched that card at some point? Sure. It's possible. In Mary Whitman's interview, she explained that those cards were passed out by lots of people. They were readily available at the Catholic churches that Robert, his mother, and even sometimes Christian attended. So yeah, he could have touched it at some point. He could have touched one at the church. He could have touched one at Robert's house. Who knows? It's possible he touched it. So again, let's just forget about all the problems with the ID for now and just stipulate for now that Christian touched that card. So let's take a look at LeClaire's statement about the location of the card. He says that he found it about 20 yards north of the area of origin, later renamed the area of disturbance at trial. So he says that there were footprints and wheelbarrow tracks leading from Becky's body about 180 yards back into the open desert, and then all of the footprints and wheel tracks stop. Then, 20 yards from there, to the north, that's important, is this business card with nothing in between. Now, a quick check of the historic weather data shows that from 3 p.m. on the day of the murders all the way through Monday afternoon, there was a light breeze at the crime scene blowing from northwest to southeast. Let me say that again and explain why it matters. For a 24-hour period beginning before the murders and ending well after Leclerc collected the card, the wind was blowing out of the north between 4 and 8 miles an hour, from north to south. And the card was found 20 yards north of the origination point of the wheelbarrow tracks and footprints. So, how did it get there? I want you all to do an experiment for me. First, take a business card, crumple it up a bit, like the card you see in the crime scene photos on our website. You can just look at the picture, crumple it up just like that, it's pretty easy. Then go and throw it as far as you possibly can. Do this somewhere where there's no wind at all, just to see how far you as a human can throw a card in that condition. Now measure how far it went. Did it go 20 yards? Or 18.2 meters if you're using the metric system? Or 60 feet if you just don't know what a yard is? That's a long ass way to throw a business card. In fact, I'll go out on a limb and say it's impossible. The furthest I was able to achieve was 12 feet out in my barn, and I crumpled the card exactly how it looks in the picture from the crime scene. The point is that somehow the card made it 60 feet to the north of the last place where people stood, but it couldn't have been thrown that far. So how did it get there? Well, you might say wind, but the wind was blowing the wrong direction. You think throwing the card in your garage was tough, Go outside and throw it into the wind and see how well you do. While I was writing this, I noticed that there's exactly a four-mile-per-hour wind out of the northeast of my house right now. So I just went out, took the opportunity, went outside with my dog to see how far I could throw it. I actually videoed the process, and I'll post it on social media today for you guys to see. I'm traveling today when you're hearing this, so at some point I'll get it out there. But you'll see it. The idea that that card could have traveled 20 yards against the wind is absolutely preposterous. It's ridiculous. So one of two things is going on here. Either I'm right and LeClaire is completely full of shit, in which case his lack of attention to detail screwed him over bad, and this would be very much akin to Detective McGillivary misreading the cell phone data and having Jay Wilde say that he went to McDonald's in his statement. I would guess that old Gary didn't look into the weather data, and if he was planning the card... He thought he had better put it out beyond where he knew Ramirez had already looked, so he went north, not realizing that it's impossible for the card to have landed north of the point of origination. Now in the other scenario is, if we're stipulating that Leclerc is telling the truth, then the card would have had to found its way out into the desert well before the murders occurred. Days before. In the weeks prior to the murders, there were a few instances where it was very windy, and Pinion Pines experienced 30-plus mile-an-hour gusts out of the south. Now, that kind of wind certainly could blow a business card off a trash heap by the house and carry it north into the desert. Unfortunately for the state, they have a very tight and specific window to deal with. Becky made her last call around 7.40 p.m. on Sunday night, and LeClaire says that he found the card on Monday morning. During that window, there were only winds out of the north, and I'm comfortable saying that it was 100% impossible for that card to have traveled 20 yards north of any human activity to the place where he found it, which means he either lied about where he found it or the card blew out there days before the murders when they had those southerly winds. Let's continue on. You've heard me say in the past that the card was sun-stained, indicating that it was out in the sun a lot longer than the couple of hours Leclerc claims it was. If you go on our website and look through the reports, you'll see photos of the card after it was treated with ninhydrin to find the fingerprints. And what you'll notice is there are distinct patterns where the card looks almost purple and other areas where it looks light blue. Here's a little science lesson for you. I told you before that the way ninhydrin works is it exposes amino proteins, which is great for finding fingerprints, but it also has another effect. Guess what breaks down and destroys amino proteins? You probably guessed it. UV rays from the sun. You see, the reason that the entire card changed colors is because the paper contains aminos. But as the paper sits outside in the sun, the proteins break down and are destroyed. And since, because of the way it was crumpled up, parts of the car were protected from the sun, we end up with a very clear pattern of long-term sun exposure. You can use this in the same way you can use lividity evidence to see if a body was moved. And this kind of amino degradation doesn't happen in a couple of hours. It takes days, if not weeks, of sun exposure. I think, and this is based on all of my Google research, as I said, I'm not a scientist, so I want to make sure I put that out there. But in my opinion, there's no conclusion that anyone can come to based on science that says anything other than that card had to have been outside crumpled up like that long before these murders occurred. Now, that's two solid reasons why the business card is completely irrelevant, but I'm not quite done. Most importantly, I don't think anything happened out in that desert related to this crime at all. Nothing. I believe the wheelbarrow just happened to be sitting exactly where it was found by the killers. And this is why. For starters, it makes absolutely zero sense for the killers to have killed Becky out in the desert and then to have taken a wheelbarrow out to retrieve her body, haul it all the way back up to the house only to leave it out in the open for everyone to see and light it on fire. I still think that's nonsense. Secondly, if the killers took the wheelbarrow out to get her body, where are those tracks? Why do we only have tracks coming back to the house and none going out into the desert to get her? And thirdly, there's the lack of footprints. I've already made clear that I personally think Leclerc is full of shit, and this is partially why. In his report, he says that he found the first footprint 25 feet away from the wheelbarrow and others sporadically along the tire track. We have pictures of less than a dozen prints in the sand along that entire 180 to 200-yard trail. Now, when Leclerc writes his report in January, he explains that away by saying it was, quote, futile to photograph all the footprints. And to that I say, liar, liar, pants on fire. When you look at Ramirez's report and look at the crime scene photos, including the wide shots where you can see long portions of the trail, you can see that Ramirez put evidence flags everywhere he found a footprint. And if you look at the wheelbarrow path on our YouTube channel and that video I was talking about earlier, you'll see them there too. What LeClaire expects us to believe is that there was a steady pattern of footprints from the wheelbarrow all the way to the point of origination, but for some insane reason, they decided to only pick out a handful of them to mark and photograph, and never even took a wide shot that shows that there were lots of prints, but they only marked a few of them. I'm sorry, but if you actually believe that, I don't know, you're pretty damn gullible. The tracks are sporadic because they're old. Most of them were blown away earlier in the week during the days of the 30-mile-an-hour winds. The only ones that were left were the prints that were protected from the wind by bushes and the pinyon pine trees. For Christ's sake, watch the video on our YouTube channel, please. It couldn't be more clear. You can clearly see what fresh tracks look like because you can see the investigators and firefighter tracks consistently along the entire path. Those tracks, the ones they're saying belong to the killers, are old and they have nothing to do with this crime, which means the business card also has nothing to do with this crime. Lastly, we have the DNA results. Most of you don't know this, but in one of the many rounds of DNA testing, Vicky's DNA was found on the wheelbarrow handle. So the big question, who pushed the wheelbarrow to that location? Well, it looks like it was probably Vicki. And to close things out, I want to read to you a section of one of the DNA reports that puts all of this into great perspective. If you haven't already, you're really going to want to earmuff the kids right now. For the last nine months, we've been dealing with the same old pathetic group of keyboard warriors that go on and on about this business card. They go on about it on social media. They monopolize our YouTube chat going on about how important this stupid card is. The Riverside District Attorney's Office spent 12 years and who knows how much money desperately trying to connect this card to Robert or Christian. And for those of you who truly care about truth and justice, I want you to understand that all of those people had all of the information that I just shared with you the entire time. And if you really want a deep look into the level of their integrity, listen to this. Both of these excerpts are taken from the February 2015 report from Sorensen's Forensics. First up is the business card. Let me read what Sorensen Forensics said about the business card when they sent it to yet another lab that I didn't mention earlier, trying to get a better match on Christian. Quote, a mixture of YSTR DNA profiles from two male contributors was obtained from this item. The major YSTR DNA profile obtained is suitable for exclusionary purposes only. The minor YSTR DNA profile obtained is suitable for exclusionary purposes only. Robert Pape is excluded as the source of the major YSTR DNA profile obtained. No meaningful comparison can be made between the minor YSTR DNA profile obtained and Robert Pape. Now listen to this part. No meaningful comparison can be made between the major YSTR DNA profile obtained and Christian Smith. And then lastly? Christian Smith is excluded as the source of the minor YSTR DNA profile obtained. You heard that right. While Hit Laboratories claims that Christian is a 1 in 28 trillion match to the DNA on the business card, Sorensen in 2015 says that he is in fact excluded as a contributor completely. How can there be that big of discrepancy from one lab to another? One says 1 in 28 trillion, one says completely excluded. There are so many questions surrounding that business card that I can't even count them. We have conflicting lab results, and none of it really matters because there's zero evidence the card has any actual connection to the murders anyway. But one thing we know for sure is that someone picked Becky up and put her in that wheelbarrow. Someone pulled her shoe off in a struggle and pulled her sock halfway down her foot. That is relevant, And there is no question that her sock is directly connected to this murder. And so now listen to this paragraph that the district attorney, the detectives, and the internet trolls have had this entire time. Quote, Item 5, Becky's sock. A mixture of DNA profiles from a minimum of two contributors, at least one of which genetically types as male, was obtained from this item the mixture is suitable for comparison. Robert Pape and Christian Smith are excluded as possible contributors to this mixture. A mixture of YSTR DNA profiles from a minimum of three male contributors was obtained from this item. The major YSTR DNA profile obtained is attributable to unknown male number one and is suitable for comparison. Robert Pape and Christian Smith are excluded as the source of this major YSTR DNA obtained from this item. Three male contributors. There were profiles for three men who touched Becky's sock. Robert was excluded, Christian was excluded, and John was excluded in other reports. The fucking DA's office put all this time and energy into a goddamn business card that was supposedly floating around in the desert when they have the killer's DNA on Becky's fucking foot. This case is a goddamn catastrophe. It's horrifying what happened here. The sheriff's department and this DA's office show zero respect for the victims or their loved ones. None. I feel terrible for the family members who've been used like pawns in the state's game of politics. This is not justice for your loved one. I'm sorry, but it's not. If I thought for a minute that the right people were behind bars for these murders, I wouldn't touch this case with a 10 foot pole. I am here for the victims. I am here for you, and so is my audience. We're here to find the truth and for you. And it breaks my heart every day that you've been led to believe that Becky, John, and Vicki got justice. They didn't, and that's why we're doing this. B.I. Studios production and is distributed by Wondery, edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed and scored by PutThemInASong.com who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing and maintaining our website to financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week then other reward levels include t-shirts hats and even the opportunity to co-host one of our friday follow-up episodes just go to patreon.com truthandjustice you can also do us a huge favor by going to itunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review and lastly you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at Truth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice